0: Hearing, 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 the Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Melissa S. May of Vanderburgh County presiding,
1: the Honorable Leanna K. Weissman of Dearborn County,
2: and the Honorable Peter R. Foley of county You may be
3: seated. Good morning. I would like to note for the record that that clock on the wall is wrong, um, and it is exactly 10.01 instead of So, um, we're here in the case of Tony Ritchie versus State of Indiana. Um, For counsel for appellant, okay, um, counsel for appellant, we have Amanda Blacketter. Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? Good, because I usually don't. Um, Counsel for Appellee, we have Courtney Staten and Carolyn Templeton. Um, Ms. Staten, you're the only one that's going to be arguing. Um, For the appellant, 15 minutes with five for rebuttal. All right, counsel um, for the appellant, Ms. Blackwater, the case is with you. Thank you. You may proceed.
1: May it please the court, a jury convicted Mr. Ritchie of possession of a firearm as a serious violent felon, which is a level four felony. He has been sentenced to six years in prison with one year of formal probation after that. This court should vacate his conviction for two reasons. First, the state failed to prove that he is a serious violent felon. And secondly, the firearm was obtained as a result of an unlawful seizure, and it should not have been admitted at trial. Alternatively, Mr. Ritchie is entitled to a new trial due to fundamental error of allowing the jury to hear about prior felony convictions that were irrelevant to his case. I will discuss the relevant facts separately with each section of my argument, as they're very different. Here, the state failed to prove first that Mr. Ritchie was the 1994 burglary offender, and this was a necessary element of so his charge. So let's talk about that
2: a little bit. I, I know you were the attorney on Woodward versus State, upon yes. which, which you rely, and the facts are similar in that case to this one, but in this case, we have the addition of identifying marks in the case of tattoos.
1: Your Honor, I believe that this case is unique from other tattoo cases for two reasons. First of all, there were no photographs of the tattoos of the 1994 offender. There simply were no photographs admitted um, in the records. And secondly, there was no witness who testified that they had seen the 1994 offender's tattoos and that Mr. Ritchie's tattoos matched those, Your Honor. So
2: we're just relying on what was in the record, the written record against the visual record, correct?
1: Your Honor, yes, so the written record pertained only to the 1994 offender and it listed six general descriptions of tattoos, for instance, a skull tattoo, um, a heart tattoo. When I googled those this last week, I came up with millions of different designs that you can come up with for skull tattoos, heart tattoos, face tattoos.
0: But but the source in the record, the source of the 94 tattoos, the tattooing or the description of them is the pre-sentence investigation report, is that correct?
1: I don't recall, but that would make sense to me, Your Honor. I don't recall exactly. I know it was in the certified records.
0: Right. So it wasn't witness testimony.
1: There was no witness testimony about the tattoos.
0: And it was not a photograph. Correct. All right. So it's just a written description of what those tattoos are laid up against the photos uh, that were provided as an exhibit, correct?
1: The photos of Mr. Ritchie himself, yes.
0: So that, that was the evidence that the jury would have had.
1: Yes, okay. and Your Honors, I would submit it's impossible to match Mr. Ritchie's tattoos, you know, match, um, because there were no photographs of the 1994 offender and there was no witness to testify about that.
2: So Ms. Ketter, I've seen the, the photos in the record, but there are a couple, especially of the back, that are, you just can't tell what it is. Is that the, what was presented to the jury or is that just on the appellate record that that's not reviewable?
1: Your Honor, I believe the photographs that were actually shown to the jury were very likely um, legible. You could see them. Um, Clearly, the photographs that are in the record are not legible. Now, I would also let the court know that the trial judge in this case did have Mr. Ritchie take off his shirt during the trial, so the jury would have viewed his um, upper body and tattoos located there. I want to point
3: out- What other than the description of the the tattoos um, was there to connect him to that crime?
1: Your Honor, there were two pieces of uh, circumstantial evidence which came from recorded jail calls that Mr. Ritchie had made. Um, One of them, he had mentioned a case I had in Owen County, and in the second recorded jail call he had said, they caught me with a weapon, a weapon charge. And similar to Woodward, um, I would submit that this does not make it more likely that he was the perpetrator of the 1994 burglary. It might make it more likely that he committed some offense in Owen County at some time, but the state had the burden here to prove that he committed the specific offense of burglary as a Class B felony in 1994, and that they did not do. I want to circle back to the tattoo evidence for a moment. I think it's significant that the written record for the 1994 offender said he had the initials DG tattooed on his thumb. And the photographs and um, visually seeing Mr. Ritchie at um, trial, he had no tattoos on his thumb, let alone the initials DG. Doesn't there appear to be a DG next to his thumb, though? Your Honor, I I did not see that, and I did not believe there was a DG on his thumb. Okay, so there's
2: some tattoo as he's holding his, his finger next, to, that appears next to the thumb that looks to be initials, would you agree that that uh, from exhibit number 23, there's something there?
1: I would agree there are, there, there's something, but it's not legible. You can't see what it is. And it's not on the thumb. And it's not on the thumb, as the written record states.
3: Was there, I see that on the court information sheet, the pre-sentence investigation report, um, I'm not sure what exhibit it is, it's like page 26 of 40. It does show a social security number. Um, Was there any testimony about his social security number at the trial?
1: Your Honor, having reviewed the transcript and all of the records submitted, there were no social security numbers submitted that would match up. Okay. And no fingerprints.
2: No fingerprints.
1: No fingerprints, Your Honor. I'd like to comment um, on the reliability or the reliable evidence that could have been submitted. Fingerprints are number one. You know, if Mr. Ritchie was indeed the 1994 offender, clearly he served a long prison sentence. There would have been fingerprints. There would have been booking photographs. You can also call a variety of witnesses from a court reporter, um, police officers, investigating officers, that type of thing. I think it's significant here in this case that the state did call the investigating sheriff from the 1994 case at trial, and he was unable to identify Mr. Ritchie as the offender.
2: So, how, if we decide that that this isn't enough, how are we not reweighing the jury? This went in front of a jury. The jury observed him in ways that we aren't able to observe him, and made a conclusion that he is the same Tony Lawrence Ritchie with the same birth date of the offender in 1994. How are we not reweighing evidence here?
1: Your Honor, it is possible for circumstantial evidence to become sufficient to prove identity. But when the probative value of the state's circumstantial evidence is minimal and it doesn't rise to the level of proving beyond a reasonable doubt, we take it away from the jury. I mean, honestly, here, you know, juries were routinely finding that name and date of birth were sufficient to prove someone's identity. I suspect if you throw in a social security number, they're absolutely going to think that, when evidence is such that people steal identities all the time. So I think there are clearly points where we take it away from the jury, um, name and date of birth aren't enough. When this evidence is so incredibly weak, um, this is another situation where, you know, I don't think you're you're reweighing the evidence, I guess, but there has to be a minimal standard that you can you know, say that it was proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And we don't have that here. And let's be honest, the jury found Mr. Ritchie guilty, I believe, because they heard about his eight prior felony convictions at the beginning of the trial. And they thought he was a pretty bad dude. Your Honor probably is not good enough for jury trials. Um, We can't just prove identity that he's probably the same guy. We have to hold the state to the burden of proof. And we cannot reward shortcuts. And shortcuts are what happened here. Clearly there was sufficient, there was a lot of evidence available to the state if they'd chosen to get it and and, um, present it. So there are
2: some that seemingly match and some that don't. Is the sum enough? Because in, in Woodward we talk about how, you know, those two items of just the birth date and the name is not enough. So what makes it enough? What do we have to put on the scale? Is it just a little bit, or do we?
1: It has to be more than a little bit, Your Honor. Clearly, I think it has to be more than a little bit. Otherwise, we wouldn't have said name and date of birth aren't enough.
2: So the jury has to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that this is the same person that committed the 1994, and they were, they convicted him, but you're saying they did so on unreliable evidence?
1: Yes, Your Honor, I believe so. I think a generalized description of tattoos would never be um, reliable evidence. I think you would need a witness or you would need a photograph to compare it to.
2: From
1: from the record we have,
2: there's a lion on the right lower arm, and that's difficult to see because it's not identifiable easily as a lion. There's a skull on the right upper arm that looks like maybe the start of a skull with a covered face at the top. There's a heart on the back. We can't see that because Correct. the record wasn't provided. There's no DG on the thumb. There's a face on the back, which we can't see. And there's a grim reaper on the left arm that appears to be like a dragon?
1: Your Honor, I don't believe there was any evidence that matched that said it was a grim reaper. Okay. That was one that was, was not found, I guess, or, or could okay. not be seen.
3: Um, or again, it was the artistic you know, impression of the officer who saw it. I'm sorry. Or it was the artistic impression of the officer who saw it and marked it down in the record as what the Grim Reaper was, or it was described to him as that by Mr. Ritchie. I mean, we
1: don't have any evidence Correct. of that. We don't know. And that's one reason why tattoo evidence is very unreliable, unless you have a photograph or you actually have a person who has seen it and has seen Mr. Ritchie's tattoos and could compare it.
3: <clears throat> well, there's no, there's no question that um, the information could have been better with respect to... Um, the evidence supporting that. Let's talk about um, the actual stop. Yes. Um, Mr. Ritchie was kind of walking up and down the roads. Yes. And um, an officer saw him on uh, several occasions, and since he was still wandering around in the rain, um, decided to find out what was going on. Do you think that was, Um, improper
1: for the officer to do your honor the way this happened was improper Um, had the officer who had seen him wandering around merely stopped his vehicle without lights without anything like that and said hey man are you okay do you need something that would be a different situation than what we have what we have here is um, officer surly has been told um, hey, watch out for this guy. I've seen him wandering around a lot. And he may have told him that I, I think he might have been trespassing in the woods. So office, Told by whom? Um, Corporal Parker was an off-duty officer who had seen Mr. Ritchie several times that evening. And he was the one who called dispatch and said, hey, can you send somebody out to check this guy out? So he was off duty. He called his neighbor, Officer Surley, who was also off duty and said, would you keep an eye out for him? So Officer Surley, and there's a dash cam of this that you can review, um, you'll see his vehicle and you'll see Mr. Ritchie walking. um, The only possible infraction that he would have seen himself is that Mr. Ritchie was walking on the wrong side of the road, on a rural Shelby County road. Um, you'll see him put his lights on and he effectuates a stop. And I think it's significant that the state actually admitted this was a Terry stop during the suppression But hearing. doesn't
2: it turn consensual because at some point the officers rendering aid or offering aid that, that Mr. Ritchie is accepting?
1: Can a Terry stop transform into a consensual encounter? Yes, I think it's theoretically possible, but I think it would be under limited circumstances, Your Honor. At the heart of a consensual encounter is the fact that the individual must remain free to leave. Here there's clearly been a Terry stop that the state admitted he was not free. At the
2: point the weapon is discovered he's been offered a ride that he could have refused and the only reason the weapon is discovered is because the officer wants to ensure his safety before an unknown person gets into his car. How is that not a consensual encounter?
1: Your Honor I believe because he was stopped and he was held, he was not free to leave. I believe the police must inform him at a minimum that he is free to leave before the encounter can become consensual. And then I think the circle sor- implied by do you want a ride or not? You know, it, it wasn't—I it,
2: don't think the officer said you have to take a ride. We're taking you to jail. He offered him a ride.
1: Let's look at what happened prior to that, Your Honor. He stopped by an officer with lights. That officer has him stand in front of the vehicle— for nine minutes and another officer arrives in a police vehicle with lights.
0: The question I have kind of dovetails on that is when does the offer for the ride come about?
1: I believe that offer for the ride came about 12 minutes into this unlawful stop. So he stopped. He's told they're waiting on an officer, and he waits. There's, what is so critical here is that there's no investigation into the what could be legitimate reasons for a Terry stop. Nobody ever talks to him about walking on the wrong side of the road. Nobody ever asks him if he's been trespassing in the woods. They simply make him wait. And he has waited 12 minutes by the time that he's offered a ride. Your Honor, I think it was an unlawful stop. And without some kind of an intervening event, without telling him you know what you're free to go but if you want a ride and he walks away and comes back or he requests a ride without something um, it would just you know the deterrent effect of keeping evidence out is, is what we need to enforce our Fourth Amendment and the Indiana Constitution and without keeping this evidence out you know it, we would be condoning unlawful police activity I'd like to comment briefly on the fact that the officers, the two initial officers were off-duty, and the state seems to think it's reasonable for them to stand around and wait for a non-duty officer, but I would submit that that's a red herring. If you're an off-duty officer, you still have the authority to stop someone, which they obviously did. The Fourth Amendment doesn't cease to apply just because you're off-duty. If they stop someone, they have to follow the Constitution and the laws of the state. So they should have began an investigation. They should have asked questions. Instead, they just waited, and he waited for 12 minutes. So
3: were they in their, in their regular cars? In other words, did they have access to their
1: radios and things like that? They did, Your Honor, and I thought it was significant that Corporal Parker, actually, when he got the call, went back to his home. He had been in his personal vehicle, got into his police car with his gun and his badge, and then went to the scene where Mr. Ritchie had been stopped.
3: Okay. Any more questions? Thank you, Council. You have Thank five you. minutes for a rebuttal.
4: Ms. Dayton? Good morning, Your Honors. May I please the court? This court should affirm Ritchie's conviction for unlawful possession of a firearm by a serious violent felon for three reasons. First, the state presented sufficient evidence to prove that Tony Lawrence Ritchie was the same Tony Lawrence Ritchie who was convicted of Class B felony burglary in 1994. Ritchie had the same name, date of birth, height, hair color, eye color, gender, and race as the Tony Lawrence Ritchie from 1994. Ritchie also had many of the same tattoos that Tony Lawrence Ritchie was documented as having in the pre-sentence investigation report and made a comment that he had a prior case in Owen County. The second reason um, is that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in the admission of evidence. The gun was properly seized during a consensual encounter. The purpose of the Terry stop was complete, and Richie was free to leave. Um, Rather than have Richie continue to walk aimlessly in the rain, Deputy Thompson offered to give him a ride. At that point, Richie was free to refuse um, the offer of a ride and continue to walk uh, toward his stated stated purpose of either Edinburgh or Indianapolis. Um, Instead, he agreed to accept Deputy Thompson's offer. And in doing so, essentially offered up that he had a gun on his person. Um, so it was during this consensual encounter that the gun was seized, and therefore the trial court did not abuse its discretion when it admitted this lawfully seized evidence in, at trial. Uh, the third reason is that the alleged evidentiary errors in this case do not constitute fundamental error, uh, because they did not make a fair trial impossible or deprive Richie of fundamental due process. Um, so in this case, the state did present evidence, uh, strong circumstantial evidence, to prove that Tony Lawrence Ritchie was the same Tony Lawrence Ritchie from 1994 who had been convicted of the Class B felony burglary. So, uh, so was the height and weight the exact same as
3: it? I mean, was he t- was he asked how tall he was and was he asked his weight at trial?
4: Uh, you know, the state submitted state's exhibit six, uh, which contained uh, booking um, information from the Shelby County Jail, uh, which provided. Tony Lawrence Ritchie's full name, date of birth, social security number, his height, his weight, his eye color, his hair color, um, information such as uh, those vital statistics that were corroborated by the 1994 pre-sentence investigation report. Certainly after 28 years, his weight was slightly different. I mean, he was a little bit heavier at 50 than he was at 22. Uh, He certainly had less hair. Um, But some of those immutable characteristics, his height, his eye color, his gender, his race, um, all shored up with the same information from
0: 1994. Is uh, there a 94 to 2021 link of uh, Social Security number?
4: There was not a link to the Social Security number, Your Honor. Um, That was uh, a portion of the certified documents that was redacted um, from the pre-sentence investigation report. So his Social Security number was before the jury, but it wasn't linked necessarily to the 1994 offender. Um, But that fact in and of itself is not fatal to the state's case. Again, the state presented this full name, the date of birth, but then it went above and beyond that to provide the circumstantial evidence of these vital statistics. So in addition to these characteristics that all matched up to the offender from 1994, the state also submitted evidence that Ritchie had many of the same tattoos that were documented in 1994.
0: But, but there's also in the record that the fact that some of the prior tattoos listed from 94 were not present um, for the trial in, I think, 2022. So how do we explain that?
4: Well, Lieutenant Carroll explained that uh, at trial, Your Honor. So Lieutenant Carroll testified that um, she was a jail commander and that she would document these distinguishing characteristics upon an inmate coming into the jail. And that when she was documenting Richie's tattoos, that she noticed that Richie had tattoos on top of tattoos. Um, and that it appeared as if he had been covering up older tattoos with newer tattoos. Um, back in 1994, he had these six tattoos documented. But in 2021, when he was booked in, he had sleeves. I mean, he had tattoos on top of tattoos. Um, she testified even so far as to say, you You know, I think that I see the Grim Reaper on his upper left arm. Uh, You can see the end of the robe. You can see the staff that the Grim Reaper would have held, where that tattoo would have been documented, but it's been covered up with newer tattoos. So there was some evidence before the trial, or before the jury, rather, for them to weigh that evidence. And I think it's important to note that this, this court's standard review, upon a sufficiency review, is to take the facts most favorable to support the, the verdict, and that we don't second guess or question the determinations that the jury so our made. Our review
2: is a bit hampered by the fact that in the appellate record, we can't see any visuals of the back.
4: That and is true, your That Honor.
2: relates to two of the tattoos. That's correct, Your Honor. Whose burden was that to present that to us in a, a clearer manner? Was it was the th-
4: appellant's burden, Your Honor. Um, it's, it's the appellant's burden to support or supply the record that's available for this court for review, especially to make forward their claim. But it was your exhibit, correct? The state's exhibit? It was the state's exhibit, but as, as my cohort mentioned, we have no reason to believe that the jury wasn't presented with fully articulable versions of the exhibit so that they could see, in addition to the fact that the state had Richie remove his shirt and present himself as a physical demonstrative to the jury. So the jury had uh, not only the documentation from 1994, but they had Ritchie in person and the photographs that were submitted to shore that identification up, along with the testimony from Lieutenant Carroll that some of the omissions, some of the tattoos that you're not seeing, may have been covered up.
3: Wouldn't it have been a better practice to have had fingerprints or, or some other form of something that couldn't change by over-tattooing or something like that?
4: Certainly, your honor. The, the state's case could always be stronger, uh, and the state could have, if that if that evidence was available to them, certainly the state could have submitted it to the jury. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't the evidence have been available to them? You know, I don't have that information before me in the record, your honor. I, I could speculate as to why the state may not have had that evidence available to them, or may not have submitted it. At well, trial. I mean, we we do
3: have to hold the state to a, a certain standard. Um, I mean, you know, the, the cases talk about what we have to rely on in order to support a conviction in certain things. And we already know that the birth date um, and the name is not enough. And so you're asking us to, in this case, say that, you know, oh maybe the height, well, the weight's different because he's obviously older, Um, tattoos that don't match up. I mean, how much of a slippery slope do you want us to go here?
4: I think it's important to note that the Indiana Supreme Court has specifically said that circumstantial evidence is sufficient to shore this identification up and while uh, fingerprints and photographs and DNA and testimony of somebody who's familiar with the defendant are available means by which the state can meet that burden of proof they are not the exclusive means Uh, and that the state if they if the state simply does not have that information or that evidence available to them must be able to meet their burden in other ways and so the Indiana Supreme Court in this court has never crafted a checklist Uh, that the state must meet specific elements or specific pieces of evidence in order to meet their burden of proof. But rather, the Supreme Court has held that circumstantial evidence is sufficient. And here we have these vital statistics. We have the documentation of the-
0: Let me jump into the Woodward decision, because in in that decision, the panel of this court had, you know, the certified copies of the prior conviction. So we have date of birth and those types (laughs) of things. And then there was this additional testimony, that he, Woodward made the acknowledgement that he was not allowed to possess firearms, and that was identified uh, in that case as this other circumstantial evidence. But then the Water Court put that aside and said it's not probative of this specific prior offense. I mean, it, it seems that is very similar to the jailhouse telephone call we have in this case where he talks about an Owen County case. Um, and there could be a lot of people with an Owen County case. Um, uh, so, uh, that would, where I came from was not an uncommon phenomenon. So, um, it it, 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 um, how how do we not analyze that in the same manner the woodward court did
4: well i think i think this court is going to analyze it in the same way that it analyzed woodward and i think it's important to note that in woodward all the state presented was name date of birth and that statement um, it was during a communication that the defendant had with a detective after he'd been arrested where he mentioned that he did he wasn't supposed to have a gun and he'd be in substantial trouble if he did so this court looking only at the fact that the state submitted just a name and date of birth found that that extra that extra statement by itself didn't carry the day. That wasn't the circumstantial evidence that we could link up to shore identification. Whereas here, we do have the vital statistics that match. Whereas in Woodward, the state didn't present any evidence to shore up height, weight, uh, race, gender, um, eye color, those types of vital statistics, which we do have here. So we have additional circumstantial evidence in this case above and beyond his statements. But I also think if we look at the statements that he made during that jail phone call, it does take us a step further Uh, than what this court had before it in Woodward, because Ritchie specifically mentioned that he had a case in Owen County, and the state's certified documentation that they submitted to the jury was specifically alleging allegations and convictions out of Owen County. So it's just another piece of circumstantial evidence that the jury can use to link this Tony Lawrence Ritchie, present in court in 2021, with the Tony Lawrence Ritchie who was convicted of a Class B felony burglary in 1994. So the state's evidence here does go further. Um, Therefore, the state did submit uh, sufficient
2: evidence to support so the Wilbur case says that you have to have other identifying information to match the defendant. If we look at the tattoos, you're saying, well, the thing that looks like a dragon could be a Grim Reaper. It could have been tattooed over and the lion maybe not there and the skull maybe a skull or not skull. Isn't that a leap that we're having to make to to connect the nineteen ninety four information with what we have today? Because it doesn't match seamlessly.
4: I think it's a, it's a determination for the jury to make, Your Honor, and that the state can submit that evidence, and, and was very candid. There are tattoos here um, that were documented in 1994 that Tony Lawrence Ritchie doesn't currently have in court here today, but the state did provide exp- testimony from an officer to explain what she observed personally. They had Tony Lawrence Ritchie approach the bench, or approach the jury, and submit his tattoos for the jury's consideration. So that was a, a determination for the jury to make, and upon a sufficiency review, this court does not remove that from the purview of the jury. and. Reweigh the evidence to make that determination.
2: So What you're saying is we can't get to reversal here without reweighing the evidence that the jury saw and heard.
4: Yes, your honor, uh, that the evidence here certainly meets the, the the burden that's been set out by our Supreme Court of additional circumstantial evidence to shore up identity.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the fundamental error argument that that the defense is making. It is troubling in this case that there were. So many additional convictions that were brought to the jury 's attention that had no bearing on this trial, how is that not reversible or fundamental error
4: well fundamental error is an extremely narrow exception as your honor is aware um, that it only applies in the most egregious cases where the defendant has been denied of the the fundamental purpose of a trial, the ascertainment of truth. Um, and here, Richie's argument was that he was not a serious violent offender because the state would not be able to prove that he was the same person who committed those crimes. Um, so the state's putting on evidence of the fact that this previous offender had one conviction versus a previous offender who had eight convictions did nothing to go to the, the ascertainment of the truth in Richie's case. Because, But it was highly prejudicial. Well, it, it, it's interesting because with a standalone case of unlawful possession of a firearm by a serious violent felon, the state is going to submit evidence to the jury that the defendant has a previous conviction. Um, There are ways that the defendant can mitigate that prejudicial impact, either by stipulating to their status as a serious violent felon, at which point the state cannot submit any documentation to that effect. or. or or by taking other means. And here, Richie chose, or asking for bifurcation, really, would be uh, another step that the defendant can take, is to ask to bifurcate. And Richie didn't ask to do that here. So the state had the the obligation to present evidence to meet this essential element of the crime. Um, And in doing so, submitted complete copies of the charging information without objection. Um, So the question is whether that rises to such a level that it denied Richie a fundamental due process, and the state contends that it did not, Um, simply for the fact that the jury, again, was going to find out he had a class B felony burglary. I mean, these additional felonies wouldn't have swayed the, the trial or the, the jury's determination of guilt one way or the other with that knowledge before it.
0: If, if I can jump to the uh, the stop and the question I had for appellants counsel was regarding, I, I get the stop and we've got two officers on scene. And then we've got this delay of approximately 11 minutes before officer number three, the uniformed officer, shows up. In that 11 minutes, is there discussion of uh, my understanding from the record, there's no discussion of the infraction of walking the wrong way on the, on the road, or get, uh, but is there any discussion on uh, getting the ride and waiting for Officer Thompson so he's the Uber uh, for Mr. Ritchie?
4: Upon my review of the record, I do not find a, a, a specific incident where they discussed with Ritchie that they were waiting for an on-duty officer to arrive to give him a ride. Um, What I have is is testimony from Corporal Parker and Officer Searle where they discussed that they were talking with Richie about where he has been, what he has been doing walking around the neighborhood, where are you trying to get to, what was this confrontation you had with your girlfriend, um, why did you change from wanting to get to Indianapolis to Edinburgh, and so they were having this conversation with Richie on the side of the road, uh, waiting for an on-duty officer to arrive, and, and you're correct that a- around 11 minutes later, the on-duty officer arrives, and at that point in time, merely approaches Richie and offers to give him a ride, um, asks, would you like a ride? That question in and of itself at that point in time implied that Richie was free to say no thank you. Um, if somebody could point me in the direction of Edinburgh, <laughs> that'd be great.
0: Uh, so this is October of the year, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And, and it's rainy. Correct. Or, and late afternoon?
4: 7 o'clock p.m.
0: Okay. So is there a public safety issue uh, with somebody in that um, description of of Mr. Ritchie walking county roads? Uh, I mean, it strikes me that that may be an issue too. Is that relevant to our uh, legal analysis? I
4: think it's relevant. Um, Both Corporal Parker and Officer Searle testified that they were concerned for Ritchie. Specifically, Corporal Parker testified that after having seen him walk in the neighborhood in circles, in the rain, without appropriate weather gear, in the cold, um, that he was concerned for Richie, that Richie had gotten himself turned around. Um, and that was the basis of the first call to dispatch, it wasn't to have this man arrested, it wasn't to, to pick this guy up. and, and and, and do something with him criminally. It was, can somebody come out here and offer him a ride? Um, I'm off duty, so I can't do it, but I was hoping that somebody could come and get him off the roads. And if you look at what Richie was wearing, he was wearing a dark hoodie with a dark cap, and he was wearing um, jeans. And so at that point of time, at night, in a rural county neighborhood where there isn't visible overhead lighting, it did pose a risk to risk, uh, Richie's safety that he'd be walking along these roads aimlessly. And I think that's why Deputy Thompson approached him and said, "May I, would you like a ride? Um, And at that point in time, Ritchie said yes. And due to officer concerns and his safety and his standard operating procedure, Deputy Thompson merely asked him if he had anything he needed to be aware of. Um, And at that point in time, Ritchie volunteered that he had a gun. So it's the state's contention that this was a consensual encounter, at which point the gun was ultimately seized, and that the trial court did not abuse his discretion when it admitted that evidence at trial. And if there are no further questions at this time, the state respectfully requests this court affirm Ritchie's conviction. Thank you, Your Honors.
3: Anything additional? No. Okay. You may proceed with your rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um,
1: First, I'd like to swing back to Woodward for just a moment. There was evidence in the Woodward case, as you know I'm familiar with that, about general physical characteristics of Mr. Woodward that were admitted. And off the top of my head, I recall, I think it was his hair color, his, his sex, his race, um, possibly eye color. You know, there, there was some evidence about. Is height. that from
0: both cases or just the prior case? Because I, I mean, you know, you got to have prior you got to have two you got to have correct. two links in the chain, right?
1: That's correct. It, from the prior case, there was in Woodward, and that wasn't enough. Okay. So thank you. Um, I think you have to come back to could just offering him a ride on the facts of this case transform this into a consensual encounter and i think what you have to ask yourself is what a reasonable person in mr ritchie's situation have felt free to leave now remember he's been stopped by a police vehicle with lights he's been told to stand at the front of the car and he stood there for nine minutes he's waiting on another officer is all he knows a second police officer arrives in a car with lights and they continue to wait at this point nobody has talked to him about any investigative questions they haven't said um were you in the woods, were you trespassing, do you know that you were walking on the wrong side of the road, you shouldn't do that, and issued a citation. So they haven't done that. And then the third officer arrives in a car with lights. So he has three officers, three cars, and lights. And there's not any discussion about what he's done wrong, and the third officer offers him a ride. I don't, I don't think that any reasonable person in that situation is going to feel like they're free to leave. Clearly, at that point, he thinks they're not going to let me walk around on these county roads in Shelby County any longer. I'm going to go somewhere, and they're going to take me. So, um, Your Honors, it was an unlawful Terry stop. Um, they failed to investigate the reasons for the stop. And so at that point in time, it's, it's, it's unlawful. They held him for 12 minutes. Um, when you say they held him to 12 minutes at, at the
2: 12 minute point is that when he's offered the ride that's what I believe your honor and so was the jury stopped over at that point when it changes from them investigating the possibility of trespass investigating the possibility of him walking the wrong way on the road they're done with their investigation and it switches to more of a community caretaking function
1: your honor there's all that line in the sand and should we The Terry stop was not over. I don't think any reasonable person in his situation would think the Terry stop was over. But it was over before they found the gun, because he could have said, no, thank you. I don't
2: want to ride. And he could have walked off with the gun still in his pocket.
1: And again, would a reasonable person have felt free to leave in these circumstances? I don't think so. I think there has to be more of an intervening event. And if you look at some case law, it talks about the intervening event, do you want to ride or not? Not if they don't tell him he's free to leave. And we don't know that. It's implied in do you want a ride or not? But we don't know that they said do you want a ride or not. We don't know the exact thing they said. We'd have to look back at the transcript, I suppose, but it was most likely can I give you a ride somewhere or something like that. Not something that's going to imply. But our
0: analysis have been different if the ride had been offered in whatever form it was offered, not in minute 12, but at minute 2 or 3?
1: Your Honor, I think if the police officer had pulled up without lights flashing, and said, hey, man, what's going on? Do you need a ride somewhere? That would have been okay. I think it's okay for police officers to offer. On a road without a
0: shoulder, isn't it common sense to put your lights on so you don't get hit?
1: Your Honor, these were lights that I think we have to look at what Mr. Ritchie saw. He saw a police vehicle activate its lights, gesture for him. I mean, he clearly, it was a stop. And, again, the state admitted it was a Terry stop here. So I think that's significant. Are there any other questions the Court has? I don't believe so. Okay. Thank Thank you very much.
3: All right. We would like to thank counsel for their ABLE arguments. We will meet, discuss the case, and we'll issue an opinion in due course. Thank you. Everybody try to stay dry out there today.
0: Court is now adjourned.